Good morning. Guys, it is really good to see each and every single one of you. I love how much uh, we get to have together as a church family, and I also love getting to see your faces every, every week, um, get to do life with you guys, and uh, get into God's Word together. So if you didn't hear it, it's Revelation 5 is where we're going to be today, but we're also going to be in Genesis 49. So if you can keep two tabs in your Bible, Genesis 49 and Revelation 5. Five. It's the first and the last book of the Bible, so just in case you need to find it. Uh, we are in this series where we're kind of aligning our thoughts in here with what the kids are experiencing back there and what families are experiencing each week this Advent season as we're going through this devotional series called Unwrapping the Names of Jesus. And uh, we're looking at the name of Jesus, uh, the Lion of Judah. Can you say the Lion of Judah? Yeah, we're going to be looking at that one today. And the reason why we're looking at names is because biblically, names have a way of showing us the nature, the character, and the abilities of the one who possesses the name. The nature, and who they are, the character, what they're like, and their abilities, what they have potential to do, what they can do. It's what we're going to see in the name of the Lion of Judah in reference to Jesus. So let me... uh, let me pray for our morning. God, we deeply need to know your name. Not just to know it, but to be convinced that the truths that your name explain or reveal to us, uh, that we would experience them as the reality of our relationship with you. God, we thank you for making a way for us to experience uh, you, to, to know you, to walk with you, to have relationship with you, that Christ came to do that. So would you bless our time now? Would you uh, say only what needs to be said. Uh, keep me from saying what needs not be said. And I pray that, that you would press deeply your name into our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you... Okay, a lot of my illustrations come from movies because I used to be kind of like a movie guy. How many of you have seen the movie Taken? Yeah, Taken. If you haven't yet, there's going to be tons of spoilers this morning, um, but uh, that's your fault. It's been out for like 20 years. So um, don't, don't, don't blame me. Um, that movie, uh, one of my favorite uh, actors, Liam Neeson, he, he's featured as a father in that movie. And in the start of the movie, you kind of find he's gentle, he's soft-spoken, uh, he's fun, he cares about his family. He's in a broken marriage, not the best image. But turns out that he sends his daughter away on a vacation and, uh, to Europe and he gets a phone call that basically his daughter is being abducted. He tells his daughter, they're going to take you. And one of the things that we find out um, is that this character is a little, this father is a little bit more equipped than most of us. Um, how many of you, if you were in his situation, would feel equipped and ready and prepared to go track your daughter down after she's been abducted by uh, human traffickers? No, I mean... I personally, I would like to think that I've got what it takes to take down anybody who would come against my daughter or my son, Um, but I uh, definitely don't have what it takes. Um, We find out that Liam Neeson's character, this father, is as fierce as he needs to be to get his daughter back. You see, we live in an age where strength is said to be toxic. 
where being fierce is said to be too much. But when we have an enemy that is formidable, we need a mightier hero, do we not? We need a ferocious hero. We need a savior who can be just, if not more, violent, powerful, capable. We need a stronger warrior than our enemy. And guys, I don't know if you have come to this conclusion yet or not. But we have some pretty formidable enemies, do we not? And, and when you, if you're thinking something political like left or right, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Satan, sin, and death. Those are the mightiest enemies that we've ever faced. And they've impacted every human being that has ever existed. I just looked it up this morning. That's about either between 109 and 117 billion people throughout all of history who have felt the effects, who have been under the rule of, felt the influence by, or been destroyed by Satan, sin, and death. Nobody could escape them. Nobody has experienced life without them. We were powerless to overcome them. It was introduced at the beginning of the book of God's word in Genesis 3. That Satan, sin, and death come in and and they rupture all of the created order. But we see at the start of this book that God promises one who is mightier. That at the very beginning, when all of this goes to chaos and disorder, when the world falls and everything breaks, God makes a promise that there would become a snake crusher. That there would come one who was fierce enough, one who was powerful enough to crush the head of Satan, rid sin of its power and rule, and conquer death. We see that in Genesis 3 when God says, I will put hostility. That's that's a war term. That's not a cute little Sunday school term. That is hostility. That is enmity. They're at war. Between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent here, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, singular, the one, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And here we are, that was at the beginning of the book, and here we are at the end of the book, and we're introduced to this character who is called the Lion of Judah, who is said to have conquered. Can you say conquer? The Lion of Judah is the name we're looking at. It's the title that we're looking at this morning. And it only appears once in the whole book. Together, the Lion of Judah, just one time. Here in Revelation 5, verse 5. But the name comes from ancient words. Comes from ancient days long ago. If you have your finger in Genesis 49, go ahead and flip there. Let me set the context. It's uh, Jacob has found out that Joseph is alive in Egypt. They reunite. They move his whole family to Goshen where they can live with Joseph and, 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 and in, the, in the midst of all that famine. And, and Jacob, whose uh, other name is what? Israel gathers his sons together at the end of his days. He's about to die, and he gathers his sons together, and he speaks prophetic words over his sons. I'd love to not only know the Lord well enough, but to be able to speak so courageously to my children as Jacob 
does here. He speaks prophetically over his sons. Now, some of the sons get the short end of the stick, like Gad. Uh, Gad basically, Isaac or Israel says, Gad will be attacked by raiders. I don't want that over my life. Uh, I would not want that to be mine. But, but Judah, he gets a word from his father that is pretty powerful. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll read it for you if you follow along in your book. It's verse 9. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young what? Lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples or the nations belongs to him. And so we find Israel, Jacob, speaks a word over Judah, saying that he is like a young lion, not an old lion. Old lions can be a little bit lazy. Young lions are ferocious, right? Lions are legendary for their strength, for their beauty, for their fearlessness and ferocity. In fact, you know that the lion is the king of the what? The jungle or the desert, whichever place you want to put him. He's the king of all beasts, right? Did you know that you can hear a lion's roar from five miles away? You can't hear gunshots from five miles away. You can hear a lion roar. Go look it up. It's on BBC, National Geographic. It's all there. It's insane. They're... they're, they're Their power is unmatched. Their strength is unstoppable. They're the king of the animals. In fact, because of that, throughout history, a lot of cultures have adopted the symbol of a lion for depicting strength, for depicting rule and authority and ferocity. But it's clear here that, that Judah is said to be like a lion. That Judah is going to be one who would rule over Israel. Now, here's the key, though. Verse, verse 10 there. We have to make sure we keep that in view here. Verse 10 is telling us that there's one who is coming who would have the right to rule. Just like a lion does. And there would be one who is coming whose the obedience of the nations would belong to, just like a lion commands other animals. Now, we find out that this isn't just simply speaking about Judah. We have to understand here that he's talking about there would be one who is to come. He's not just talking about Judah. He's actually talking about one in Judah's line, one of his his offspring, who would rule, who would be a rightful ruler. And so from that, we get this understanding that there would be a lion of Judah, one who would come from the ancestral line of Judah to rule, to conquer, to show force and power. He's prophesied here, this powerful king of kings, 
Now, one question you can ask is, well, well so what is the Jewish perspective on this? Because obviously, uh, we share a similar lineage from Abraham, not in ethnicity, but in faith. What do the Jews understand about this Lion of Judah? Well, I mean, you can actually look it up, and you'll find all sorts of things. Uh, some, uh, some people refer to it as David. Some people say that the Lion of Judah was King David because he ruled so well. In fact, you can see pictures in arts uh, museums over in Jerusalem, like the, bl- the white and blue art gallery. Uh, they feature a picture uh, painted by uh, a Jewish uh, artist named Udi, U-D-I, uh, and it's called the Lion of Judah. And it's this beautiful picture, but it's talking about how great a king he is, and it's the section, it's in the section about King David. You also have the Jewish perspective that it's symbolic of Jewish rule. So you can actually go into the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, and you'll find banners with the Lion of Judah emblem painted or in in a fabric or in a poster on their government buildings. They picture it as their own authority. But you know, the Bible never actually points to David as the Lion of Judah, never calls him that. The only kind of references we see to lions are in reference to the character of God most often. So when Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, is uh, fearing for his life, he prays to the Lord that uh, the Lord would spare him, and the Lord grants his prayer we find Hezekiah praying, and he says this, I thought until the morning that the Lord, he will break all my bones like a lion. By nightfall, he would make an end of me. We, we, we see elsewhere in like Hosea how, how the image of a lion is, is one where bones are crushed, where people are consumed. Uh, there, there's a, a passage in uh, Let's see, it's in, I think it's in Isaiah, Isaiah 31, where basically the Lord roars like a lion, and he gathers in his people and they come trembling. Now, if we were to just stick with Old Testament imagery, we wouldn't have the complete image of what it means when we talk about this lion of Judah, because you and I know who this is referring to, right? We know, we raise our hands, yes, we know who this is referring to. Our passage actually confirms for us, Revelation 5. We, at the beginning of, in the Genesis account, we find this reference to the Lion of Judah. At the end of the book, we find exactly who this is referring to. In our passage, in Revelation 5, all of heaven is asking for one who is worthy. Worthy meaning deserving. One who is worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and to open the scroll. Now this scroll basically is God's battle plan to reconquer the world. If if we want to minimize it to simply that. One who takes that scroll has to be worthy in order to initiate the battle plan for the consummation of the kingdom of God on earth in full. 
In other words, this is an act of war, and there has to be one who is worthy. Now, we know in this passage, they're asking, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And what is the devastating news of verse 3? What does it say? There's no one. No one is found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth. No one is found worthy. Now, whether that is symbolic or whether that is happening at the time before the life of Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to surmise why Christ at this moment isn't found to be worthy per se. But the response is, is very clear. There's no one who's found worthy. And how does the author, John, respond? What does he do? He weeps. He mourns. Why does he mourn? Because if no one is found worthy, then there is no kingdom come. If, if no one is found worthy to open the scroll, then God's plan to consummate his kingdom here on earth is kaputsk. It's no more. And yet the elder, verse 5, one of the elders in heaven says, do not weep. More literally, weep no more. Cease your weeping. Why? Because there is one who has been found worthy. One who is found deserving. What's his name? The Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah, the root of David, which comes from Isaiah 11, basically an offspring of David. He says that the Lion of Judah is worthy to take the scroll, to initiate the battle plans of heaven that will consummate the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, and who would rule and to reign as king. Now, did you notice why this Lion of Judah is found worthy? What has he done? He's conquered. Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You know the word conquered in the Greek is nike, N-I-K-E, which sounds a lot like that sports company, but they've done it wrong. It means to be victorious. It means to conquer. It means to triumph. It means to overcome. And who is the one who has said, take heart, I have overcome the world? It's our Jesus. It's our Christ, the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, born in a manger, both genealogies in Matthew and in Luke tie Jesus' ancestry line all the way back to who? Guess his name? Judah. The lion of Judah has to come from the ancestral line of Judah. And we find out both Matthew and Luke, studious as they are, they find out Jesus' ancestry line connects all the way back to Judah. And when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, 
we find absolutely everything that stands in his way bows to his will, one way or another. You see, the storms that were raging cease, and the waves calm when he roars, right? When, when demons come against him, they shudder and then they flee. When sickness and disease come against him, they vanish at his words. When dividing lines that divide uh, ethnic people groups and social classes and economic classes and gender classes, right? Male and female. When, when all of these dividing lines, which were deeply rooted into the culture, he comes and he just decimates those borders, breaks down those walls, and he brings in his own kingdom. Heaven invades earth and just starts to, to spread throughout the whole region. And now we know it's here. It's covering the whole world where everyone who is following Christ, they are ambassadors, representatives, representatives, embodiments of the kingdom of God. So we know this is our Jesus. This Lion of Judah is Jesus. And at the beginning of the elder's word, he says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, behold, take a gander at. So we're about to see who the Lion of Judah is. We're about to see the image of this Lion of Judah. What would you expect? What what would you picture after hearing of one who was found to be so worthy to enact the kingdom of God and bring it here on earth? Well, you would expect probably this strapping, like, musc- like his muscles have muscles. Like he's, he's just this strapping beast of a man, roaring. He's bulging in every way. Shirts can't contain him. This kingly figure, you expect to walk out. But what does John see? We didn't read it, but verse 6. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. Then I saw a lamb that was slain. Now, does this mean that Jesus looked like a lamb? I I don't think so. That'd be weird. He looks like one who has been slaughtered like a lamb is slaughtered. In other words... This lion of Judah has the appearance of being beaten and bruised and marred and scarred. How does this make sense? How do you you put the two together? You have this strapping, striking figure of the lion of Judah coming forward to take the scroll and he's beaten bruised and bloodied. How does this make sense? That lion of Judah doesn't look very victorious. Looks as if he's been defeated, as if he's been beaten up on, that he lost the fight when the bullies came. Hmm. And herein lies an amazing gospel. You see, this Lion of Judah is victorious because 
he was slaughtered like a lamb. This lion of Judah conquered by being slain. Now, just in case you're wandering off into something that's not true, you might be thinking, uh, well, so he won the battle by being defeated. Oh, no. No, there's no defeat in this. This isn't victory via defeat. This is victory via sacrifice. Very different. In no way did Jesus lose. In no way was he defeated. In no way did he be like, well, I guess I've got to give myself over to this and let everyone else. No, he chose to lay his own life down and he chose to pick it back up again. There was not a second in the life of Jesus where he was out of control. He was the ruling authority over himself. No one, he, he, no one could tame him. And we find here that the Lion of Judah overcame. He was victorious. He conquered by being slaughtered like a lamb. And I, found, I found this by John Piper that I thought was very beautiful. The Lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne. And he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife. And they slaughtered the lion of Judah like a lamb. So he conquered sin and death and Satan, not just because he was a lion, but because he was a lion-like lamb or the lamb-like lion. The lion gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. You see, the cross wasn't the defeat of Jesus. It was his triumph. It was his victory. In fact, it was in the cross that he struck down every one of our enemies violently. He rendered them all powerless. That's exactly what Paul meant in Colossians 2. Jesus, God, erased the certificate of debt that stood against us with all of its obligations and that it stood opposed to us. And he has taken it by nailing it to the cross with Jesus. God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, his son, the Lion of Judah. Guys, this seems like foolishness to the world because the cross looks like Jesus was losing. Though he lost his life, he was winning the day. The cross looks like a public defeat and shame of our Christ, of the Lion of Judah. But the empty tomb shows that it was actually the public defeat and shame of Satan's sin and death forevermore. You see, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, conquered by being slain and rising from death. And this wasn't just a cute Good Friday image. This is one of the most violent acts of war ever committed. You see, I think at this point we get quite confused about the nature and the character of Jesus. The cross looks like weakness. The cross 
looks like um, humility and loss, and that's all it is. And you're not wrong to say that it takes humility to climb up on the cross, but we confuse humility with weakness. Humility is not weakness. Humility is strength restrained. Humility is strength willing to go low. How much strength do you think it took Christ to crawl up on that cross? Too many in the world, and I think even too many in the church, I'm not, and I, I, when I say church, I mean big C church. I get to talk about them too, because I'm in it. Too many of us hold an image of Jesus that is just so stinking frail and weak and sappy. Like when we picture Jesus, we, we often picture this Caucasian strapping man with nice flowing hair that graces his perfect jawbones as he knocks on a wooden door who trying to be your best friend. We have our coffee mugs that say, Jesus is my bestie. And we have our hoodies and our t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. It's like, this is what happens when our theology about Jesus is shaped more by Instagram and TikTok than it is by God's word. You think it was weakness that held Jesus up on that cross? Uh Uh-uh. It was the ferocity of his love. It was the strength of his faith in his Father. Nothing about that was defeat. Everything about that was victory for him. Jesus is the fiercest warrior that has ever existed throughout all of history. Now, What's hard is, we, it's hard for us to reconcile this veracity, this fury, this image of, of wrath that this lion of Judah portrays to us and to reconcile that with a Jesus who also says uh, that, that, that he is gentle and lowly in heart and we can find rest for our souls in his heart. How, how can we put the two together? Well, I can tell you, they're, they're, not, they're not opposed to one another. You know how much strength it takes for you to be gentle and lowly? To be selfless and not selfish? Selfishness is weakness. Selflessness is where strength comes in. Guys, the character of Jesus is the most comprehensively beautiful thing that we can ever know. But nothing about him was weak and soggy. Jesus, yes, he was a servant to all, but he was no pushover. We, we, we have these images of Jesus that just seem, that, they, that, that, that like, like the Holy Spirit just needs to, to purge from our hearts and minds because they keep us in a sense of relative ease and kind of relaxation when we're in his presence. 
We're to experience comfort, but are, are, are we to lose all sense of reverence and holiness? No. That's why I, I, I think um, if we were to look at an image of Jesus portrayed today that, that's outside of this book, that does such a good job to, to look into this book and say, yeah, I think this is, this is what Jesus seems to be like. I think, I think C.S. Lewis with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is one of the most powerful pictures of Jesus to help us kind of parse through this, this nearness yet powerfulness, this, this closeness and yet this veracity of Jesus. So, so if you haven't yet, again, the Chronicles of Narnia have been out since the 40s, right? I'm not going to, don't blame me for spoiling things for you, okay? Just go get the book or watch the movie. They're both good, okay? But Lewis does such a good job picturing Jesus, helping us understand who Jesus can be, right? Who he is according to God's word. And, and so we have, we have uh, these four kids, right? Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who go into Narnia, and they uh, basically start to explore. They find things, and then they meet Beaver. And Beaver, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, start to talk about this figure named Aslan. And, and, and they, they say this. There's, they, he quotes this poem, this, basically this prophecy about this character Aslan. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The kids are quite confused because they think he's a man, this Aslan character. And, and Beaver's like, a man? Who said anything about a man? No, he's a lion. And, and a lion, like, what? He says he's the king of the wood. He's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who he is, the king of beasts? Aslan is the lion, the great lion. And, and so they find out, this, these kids find out that he's a lion. And Lucy does all the right things, right? She asks, then he isn't safe? This Aslan, he's not safe? And Beaver's like, Safe? <laughs> Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then, and then, and then the story goes, they, they, these four kids eventually get to meet Aslan, and they find out just how gentle he is, how stern and just he is, how close he's willing to be. And then the story continues where he offers his own life in the place of a traitorous Edmund who betrayed the family, betrayed Aslan, right? And Aslan goes and dies on the table, an embarrassing, humiliating death in the place of Edmund. But he doesn't stay dead. The next dawn, he rises from death. He takes Susan and Lucy. They ride on his back. How awesome would that be? And they go into the white witch's castle. And with his breath, he releases the captives uh, who were turned to stone by the white witch. And they turn into flesh. And he leads them into the battle that Peter and Edmund are fighting against the white witch. And Aslan, when all hope seems lost for the human army, for the Narnians against the white witch and her forces, Aslan comes roaring over the mountain and he goes and he just totally destroys the white witch. 
It's the first act of violence we see in Aslan. He consumes her, tears her to pieces. You see, we cannot pick and choose the parts of Jesus we want to hold dear and fast. We have to take all of him and and in, in this Aslan character that's so attractive in the Narnian Chronicles, we see this bravery, we see this gentleness, we see this sacrifice, and we see the slaying. We see the power, we see the might. Just as we see in Jesus throughout the whole book of God's word, we have a fierce Jesus, a Lion of Judah, And we desperately need him to be fierce. We have to have a strong, powerful, mighty Jesus. Because we have formidable enemies. Satan, sin, and death. That we could not defeat. And the image of the lion applied to Jesus. That symbolism ought to expand our understanding of little baby Jesus in a manger because it reveals Jesus as the coming, conquering king of kings. A roaring lion taking vengeance on his enemies. You see, the lion of Judah has already won the battle. And when he returns to settle accounts with the kingdom of darkness, he will unleash his fury against all of his enemies. I don't know when's the last time you read through Revelation 19, but if you want a little dose of sobriety every now and then, Revelation 19 is a good passage to go to because it takes your Jesus of Christmas and makes it the Jesus of Armageddon. Did you know the two are the same? The Christmas at Advent is the same, or the same, the same Jesus at Advent is the same Jesus at Armageddon. They're not two different people. They're the same person with the same nature. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one except, knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Sorry, I think I actually have it on the screen for you if you don't have it there. And his name is called the Word of God, which comes from John 1. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Did you notice that he is wearing a robe dipped in blood? It's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. Do you notice the sword coming out of his mouth? 
Jesus needs no physical sword. He speaks a word and can lay waste to nations. This is our Jesus. And the same one that we meditate on and think about here in the manger scene is the same one here coming back to triumph yet again over all of creation and take back his kingdom. And all who stand against him will fall. And all who are gathered behind him will rest in safety. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I don't particularly know why God put this name in my heart to, to preach this morning, particularly because, yes, we're doing it as an Advent devotional, but I think, I think that the work that God wants to do in our hearts today in this Christmas season is to revive a sense of proper fear of the Lord. Like, is there still a fear of God in your eyes? There are some who would say, well, well, well perfect love casts out fear. There's some who would say that, that we as Christians shouldn't need to have any sense of, of fear or, 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 or I don't know if terror is the right word. Definitely awe, right? But, but a sense of fear like reverence that it's wrong for us to feel that about Jesus. They'd say, well, we're under a covenant of love. We're under a covenant of grace. We don't need to fear anymore. Now, let me ask this. Just because we are now safe in the arms of the Lion of Judah, does that then actually change his nature? No. Let me try to, let me try to explain this a little bit better. How many of you have ever been on, like, at the fair, one of those slingshot rides? Where it's like this massive catapult, and you're basically going to be sent to heaven when you get on it, right? The thing goes, right? They tell you at the beginning, hey, it's totally safe. You're, you're going to be good. You're totally safe. Does that change the nature of the fact that you are going to be catapulted from five feet off the ground to 150 feet off the ground at 2.5 seconds and slingshotted back and forth until you come to rest? Does that change the nature of the ride? The, or a skywalk, right? When you know you're in a massive building, right? This really tall skyscraper and they have those stupid windows where you can like basically walk over and there's the ground 500 floors down. Does that, like, and they say, perfectly safe. Does that change the nature of the fact that you are stepping over onto a piece of glass that's like three inches thick, and it's going to hold your weight, and you're standing 500 floors off of the ground? No, that doesn't change the nature. Just because we are safe in the arms of our God 
doesn't change his nature. It doesn't change the fact that he's still the Lion of Judah. Did, did wisdom under the new covenant, did wisdom stop being started by the fear of the Lord? Did wisdom change in how you get it? Because you know, Proverbs 1 says the beginning of the Lord is the fear, or the, sorry, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Did that just like stop being a thing for us? No, it doesn't change the nature of our God. Jesus is a lion. None can stand at his roar. He speaks a word and nations fall. We still ought to believe that Jesus is a ferocious, terrifying, strong, and mighty lion. And I think, I think that we need to have a, an appropriate, rightly placed sense of reverence for that fact. A sense of fear. Why? I can think of two easy ones. Why? Because if we have that image, this lion of Judah, this terrifying lion, we will be terrified of all forms of sin. If that's the image in your head, if Jesus is just this, oh, you did that? All right, you're good. Oh, you, you, you messed up there? All right, you're fine. Go ahead, keep, keep going. I forgive you. And he, he's just this white man from Israel who got nice flowing hair, that's all you picture him, then I, I, just, I don't, I, how, how is that going to be like, how is that going to cause you to fall on your face whenever you know that you've gone against God's word and he is holy and just and good and terrifying all the same? You can't put the two together. Yes, he is forgiving just as a lion forgives. When, when we have the right sense of fear of the Lord, understanding his veracity, that he is a lion, I think, I think we'll do better in our war on our habits of sin. We'll do better in our willingness to kind of be like, oh, there's temptation, I'll just go right into it. I think we'll be better. I think we'll strive better to, to, to find Christ's likeness in us whenever we're understanding that he is king of kings above all. I think, I think having a right fear of Jesus as the Lion of Judah will humble us and terrify us of sin. But I also, secondly, I think that if we have a right fear of, of Jesus, right, a right one, not a wrong one, if we have a right fear of Jesus, It'll, it'll keep us humble whenever we have our doubts. I'm not saying it won't keep us from doubts. I think, I think as believers, we are per permitted by God to have our struggles and doubts. And I think our Father in heaven desires to have us wrestle with those struggles and doubts in his presence. He wants all of your questions, all of the confusing points in your life. He wants to have those with you. But keep in mind, he's a lion. Keep in mind, he's fierce. He speaks a word and galaxies come blazing out of his mouth instantly. Keep in mind that he's the lion of Judah 
So it might temper how we express our doubts. It might, we might find at the end of our questions and our doubts a humility to say, I don't understand everything. God, your ways are higher than mine and I'll submit to them. So I think, I think that, that maybe the Lord in this Lion of Judah who offered himself as a lamb, I think he might be awakening in us a sense of right fear of God. You know, there's a, um, I'll say this and then, and then we'll, be, we'll be done. I, uh, I, one of the things, how many of you are familiar with Grace Christian School locally, right? Some of you go, some of you are familiar. How many of you have seen their buses or their cars, right? One of the things they have on them, what, what's the phrase that they have on them? Have you all seen that? It says, Coram Deo, right? Coram Deo, which is Latin for what? Who knows? <laughs> I wish. Coram Deo is before the face of God. It's meant to be a reminder for us as believers that we, as Christians under the grace of Christ, under his forgiveness, get to live before the face of God. That he's always near, that he's always paying attention, and it tempers how we live. My encouragement to you today is to live Coram Leo before the face of the lion. Throughout your day, as you're shopping, as you wake, as you converse with your children, as you love on your wife or your husband, as you work hard, as you commit yourself to the plow and hold the sword, Live Coram Leo. Live before the face of the lion of the tribe of Judah. I promise you, as you have that conscience awareness that Jesus is a lion, the lion of Judah, you'll fear rightly, you'll be terrified of sin more, you'll struggle more appropriately, with more humility. And I, and I think also, I think you'll find just how powerful he is when Satan tries to come against you and tempt you and hurl insults and accusations at you. Satan might speak with a whisper, but the lion roars with thunder and will drown out Every temptation, every struggle, every insecurity, every lie. He will be roaring again and again of the Father's love for you and the kindness that has been shown through the ferocious Christ, the Lion of Judah. Will you live Coram Leo this week? Let me pray for us. Father, I, I ask that there would be a sense of rightly 
divinely given fear of you. One that is tempered by your forgiveness. One that is guided by your love. But one that is propelled by your character, your nature. The very act of war that Jesus committed on the powers and the principalities of darkness on the cross, defeating Satan, ridding us of the authority, the dominion, and the guilt of sin, and overcoming death, all of our enemies have been laid waste to by the powerful, wonder-working Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. Christ, I pray that you would continue to form in us the right images, the right picture of you, the right uh, faith in you, because we desire to live according to what your word reveals you to be, not what our world tells us you are. And so awaken in us the humility that comes when your name, the Lion of Judah, is pressed deep into our hearts. May we love you with an unquenchable love, and may this week we live life, quorum leo, before the face of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of old, the dangerous, ferocious, gentle and loving King of kings. We love you. And it's in the Lion of Judah's name we pray. Amen. If you guys would stand. Instead of me praying a prayer of benediction over you, I want you to join with me in praying a prayer of benediction in praise to Christ. But before we do that, um, if you have a need for prayer, if you need care or encouragement or healing, we'd love to pray over you. You can come pray with me or our prayer team up in the front. Uh, if you have some time, you're getting out a little bit earlier than normal, so praise the Lord. Uh, you can hang out uh, in the lobby, get some refreshments some, uh, in the cafe. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Don't hurry off or go to lunch with one another. That would be awesome. I wish that was like a biblical command. Go to lunch with one another. With that, let's pray through this together. If you would read with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Living Coram Leo.